This morning for scripture reading, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. It's Isaiah, chapter 58. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As they were aware a nation that did righteous and did not forsake the judgment of their God, they asked me of righteousness, judgments. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. It is such the fast that I chose. A day for a person to humble himself is to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable, acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke is not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, and the pointing of your finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose water does not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall call the repairer of the breach, restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight as the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor, not giving your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This morning we're in our, our final sermon from uh, the Marks of Maturity set, and we look at uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 8. Title of the message is Devoted to Good Works. As we consider what a mature Christian looks like, uh, the final thing we want to think about is 
what does our life look like? Uh, we've looked at what we ought to believe. We looked at some things that ought to be present. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at uh, the necessity to be spreading the good news of the gospel because of what that gospel has done for us. I saw an advertisement re- recently for, uh, for Oakley sunglasses and apparel. And what they were attempting to say, uh, they were speaking to an obsession for something. And, and they were saying, because of your obsession, it's okay. It's okay to get up early and at 3 a.m. in the morning and drive a number of hours because it's, it's powder day on the ski slopes. It's okay to be the first into the best waves in the early morning. It's, it's okay to have pain coming from training and from mistakes when you're pursuing your obsession. It's all okay because of the obsession that controls you. And this idea of obsession is something we understand when it comes to our hobbies and to our fun activities. We understand what this means about our jobs and our vocations and the things we do. We are sometimes quite obsessed. We understand about this even when it comes to our families. I'll become quite obsessed at having the best food on the table for our families, having the best environment, and all of those things are good. And it's, it's good to obsess about some of those things. But our passage here asks the, asks the question, what about good works? Is that something we're devoted to? Is that something we're obsessed with? Is that something we're willing to sacrifice and discipline ourselves for? As we speak of good works, I'm intending to mean any activity done specifically for the good of the kingdom of God. You could substitute the word righteousness here. And so acts of good character, acts of service, any good work, any good thing that you do, for the good of the kingdom. And so we would ask ourselves a further question. If we are to be devoted to these things, if we are to be obsessed to these things, what is the driving force behind that? You see, our obsessions come from something. It's normally something we find highly desirous. It's something we find satisfaction in. Um, a well-struck animal in the field if you're a hunter, a large bass, that feeling of the fish on the string, the feeling of a flushly hit golf shot. Those are the things, and we want to feel that, and so we sacrifice for those things, and they can obsess us. But what drives our obsessions in our spiritual lives? What is the thing that causes us to invest in or not invest deeply into the work of Christ? In this passage, I think, speaks to that reality. What is the driving force for all our doing 
good for all of our service to the kingdom of God. And I think it asks us to consider not only the source and the driving force of it, but is it an obsession? Is it something we're devoted to? Is it something that we're aggressively pursuing? My alternate title for this message was was Passionate Engagement into the Gospel, into the Service of Christ. And I think this passage is going to teach us that. A text again is Titus chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, and I'll read that at this time. This is the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. If we were to trace back through Titus chapter 2, we would see a, a list of instructions of how we are to live in many different situations. And Paul addresses the patterns of right action that will and must mark the life of a Christian. And he continues that in summary form in, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. In a sense, chapter 2 and the first two verses of of chapter 3 make up the what and the how of living a Christian life. How are older men to live? They're to live sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. How are older women to live? They're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not drunkards. I've always wondered that separation there, but anyway. Um, How are young men and women to live? They're to live self-controlled. How are we to live in public? We're to live, we're to show ourselves in all respects to be models of good works. And so these instructions give us the kind of what. If you're a Christian and you're living in the world, this is what that is going to look like. If you remember from last Sunday, we spoke about Christians bearing the image of God. 
Well, these sorts of passages are God telling us what his image looks like, and if we put those on, then we bear his image. But today we address the why of putting on this image, the why of living the Christian life. And we'll also address the manner in which that why is applied to our life. Again, if I'm to boil this down to one simple sentence, if I want you to take one sentence home, it's the gospel aligns our passions with righteousness and compels us to good works. The gospel aligns our passions with righteousness and compels us to good works. Now, this passage follows uh, very closely the passage we looked at last Sunday in that it speaks again of the gospel, and, and hopefully you don't get tired of me going over this again. But Paul here, in very simple form, lays out the truth of the gospel. For we ourselves were once foolish, senseless, and deceived. So he begins with the bad news. This is the reality of all of us. For we, us, you, all of us, anyone who does not declare Jesus as having died to bear our sins, does not declare him to have resurrected to bring new life, doesn't declare him to have risen to heaven to secure our eternal life. If we do not declare Jesus as Lord, our life will be marked by these ways of life. Foolishness, disobedience, being led astray. These are the the patterns of the one who does not claim Christ as Lord. And so the unbeliever, who all of us were at once, orders his life a certain way, but the believer orders his life a different way. He speaks as well to that an unbeliever is a bit of a slave. He's a slave. He's in a situation he cannot rescue himself from. And that, again, was the case of all of us. All of us found us ourselves alienated from God and in a place where we cannot save ourselves. But Jesus comes, and he makes this slavery to sin past tense. And we see, uh, again, one of the glorious words of the New Testament, but. We were alienated from, from God, but God came on our behalf. When the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. It's His actions towards us that secure our salvation. And it's, again, he makes very clearly, it's not, a, it's not according to works done by us in righteousness. So we're not saved because we found the list of things to do and we kept them good enough for God to be happy with us. And for God to say, no, you can come in now. But according to his mercy, he rescued us in our foolishness. And that mercy is not just to rescue us from that slavery, but it also is borne out by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the gospel is 
not merely rescue from sin, but it's rescue to righteousness. And the gospel then holds the hope of eternal life. Again, if if you're here this morning and, and this gospel is not your faith and trust, we invite you to come to Christ. We invite you to confess Him as your Lord and Savior, to allow Him to work in you this work of regeneration, this work of renewal, this growing in righteousness. The third thing that we see in this passage then is that Christians are held to a high standard of behavior. Christians are held to a high standard of behavior. Again, the gospel rescues us so that we can be image bearers of God. And those image bearers are righteous. Not, yes, we are fully made righteous in Christ. It's his righteousness that purchases, that makes us righteous before God. But that gospel also works in us true, actual living righteousness. And the Bible holds Christians to a high standard of behavior. It's not something we coast in. It's something we pursue with effort. Now, common among car advertisements is something called the, the J.D. Power Awards. How many of you have heard that? Probably about everyone in, in car manufacturers have these. You know, This car has six of them, and this car has eight of them. Well, th- this company, J.D. Power, monitors the problems that occur in a particular car over a particular period of time. And they hand out these awards based on the cars with the fewer quantity of problems. And so within that, they hold these manufacturers to a high standard of quality. In the church, among Christians, uh, we don't have a, a research arm um, that goes around monitoring everyone's uh, thought. We don't put a monitor on you and you know, give you a percentage rating. Um, that would be a kind of scary thing probably for all of us. But we have each other. We have a brotherhood that is the accountability, that is the, uh, the J.D. power, if you want to say. And the means of this accountability is self-disclosure. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We are to each to be involved in each other's lives, to be fruit inspectors of each other, and we to exhibit the care and concern for our brother and our sister's growth in holiness, in righteousness. This care and this concern is to be carried out in grace and in love with much forbearance, modeling the way God has been gracious to us. And so Scripture holds Christians to a high standard of behavior, and we, amongst each other, are to hold each other to a high standard of Christian character. Uh, We see this pointed out, as I've mentioned earlier, in Titus chapter 2. These behaviors, these ways of behaving are not... um, They're not a low threshold of righteousness. And interestingly, if you look at these different categories, if you choose your own, it normally hits you pretty hard 
at, at places that you tend to fail. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, then, he also gives a list of behaviors. And if we read down all of those, speak evil of no one. No one. Show perfect courtesy towards all people. Perfect courtesy. These statements are not uh, just good suggestions for a better way to live. If you're a believer, this is how God asks you to live. And again, as we read over that list, we probably end up shrinking away and saying, don't look at me because I fall far short of that. But if you are a believer, you will be attempting with great effort to live in this way. And while these statements show our inadequacies, they, they again force us to, to Christ, to work in us, to build in us His righteousness, to pursue that perfect courtesy, that ability to speak evil of no one. Fourthly then, great effort towards godliness is germinated in the light of the gospel. Great effort toward godliness is germinated in the light of the gospel. If you grow plants, and, and um, I don't, uh, but you can have the right soil, uh, you can have the right fertilizer, you can have the right environment, you can have the right levels of moisture. But unless the sun or some artificial sun-replicating light exists, there is no growth. Every parameter that we can control can be right. But if there is no sun or no light, there is no growth. We saw this uh, similar idea in our passage last week. Understanding and believing the gospel drives us to share it with others. And in the same way, great effort towards good works is born of a right understanding of the gospel. In salvation, we become heirs of eternal life. We become uh, progressively more and more accurate image bearers of God's image. And as this happens, it shows quite clearly in our behavior. The verse in here that I think points this out uh, most clearly is verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Now, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so what he's saying um, here is that we insist on the gospel. We continually rest on the gospel. We continually communicate the gospel. And we insist on the centrality of the gospel so that those who believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Paul uses a common, say, a common phrase, the, this saying is trustworthy. And he normally uses that across multiple different of his books to refer to a statement of belief or to a creed. And here, he's referring to verses 4 to 7. 
the, the recounting of the gospel. And he's saying that we insist upon the centrality of the gospel so that the gospel being present must have an effect. It will have an effect. It will change how we live. It will change our hearts. It will change our passions. It will adjust our obsessions. And so we insist on the centrality of the gospel so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Right action results from right belief. And if right action is not present, we must question if right belief is present. Because if a right understanding of the gospel is present, it will bring forth fruit. If all of the parameters are correct in your plant and the sun shines, it grows. Um, I attempted to plant some grass, uh, put the seed out probably two months ago, and we didn't have much sun and we didn't have much water. Um, but all of a sudden, in, you know, in the last week, we got a lot of water. And then all of a sudden, this week we have some sun, and guess what? The grass is growing. Right belief, the right centering of Christ within our lives brings forth fruit in our behavior. Now, scripture gives us many ways to describe what this gospel-driven effort should look like. And so I'd like to look at three of those. The first we see in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's interesting that he puts eating and drinking there because that's a rather mundane thing. You know, it's as simple as going through the drive-thru and getting a burger, fries, and a Coke, and you're eating and drinking. It's rather mundane. But Paul is saying, no, you're even doing, you're eating and you're drinking to the glory of God. The very mundane, everyday things of life are done to the glory of God. This really is the litmus test of God-honoring behavior. Can what I'm doing bring glory to God? This applies to your family life. This applies to your work. This applies to absolutely every area of life. Is what I'm doing bringing glory to God? If any action fails that test, it is sin. For that which is not of faith is of sinfulness. And so... We pursue, we obsessively pursue good works, not for our own glory, not for our own good, not for our own reputation, but we do so to bring glory to God. Again, the idea of image bearing comes, comes to the front here. If we live righteously in the world, we rightly show the image of God. And we do so not so people see my image, but we do so so they see God's image in me. <clears throat> and so the first way we live this obsession is for the glory of God. 
Secondly, in Colossians 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, we generally read that word heartily as to work with strength, to work aggressively. And I think it it can mean that, but it was interesting what what a word study developed there. Uh, Heartily here literally means from your inner self, to work from your core, from the center of your being. And so, whatever we do, the eating and the drinking, (laughs) uh, we do that heartily. Um, whatever we put our hands to do, we do so from the core of our being. We do so from our center. We do so from our heart. As a Christian, we claim that our heart has been redeemed by Christ, that he has taken our old heart of stone and giving us a new heart, of flesh. And so for the Christian to live heartily means to live with the gospel at the center and informing absolutely everything we do. Our faith and trust in Christ is borne out in every action and it comes from the core of who we are. That's why salvation isn't something we can put on It's something that sources from inside and is displayed. It comes from our heart. The third word that we see here, we see in our passage, Titus uh, 3 and verse 8. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. The idea, the word I'd like to focus on is devote. It means to be active in helping, to show concern for. It also has an idea of of leading. So if it's something we're devoted to, it's, it's something that we show great concern and care for. And it's something that we lead ourselves into. And so to pursue righteousness, to pursue godly behavior, is something that we're to be Caring about, we're something we need to be concerned about in deep ways, but it's also something we're supposed to lead ourselves into. Simply put, devoting ourselves to good works means we intentionally order our lives around living a life honoring to God. God asks each of us to give God honoring from the heart, devoted effort for the good of ourselves and the kingdom of God. So let's place this into into real life. Uh, The first uh, thing I'd like to, to apply to is that this will be drudgery if it's pursued apart from a growing knowledge of God and His grace to you. We have to get the orders correct. If you pursue righteousness without pursuing God and a right understanding God and a deeper understanding of Him, then it will be drudgery. Tim Keller says, if you get the story wrong, for example, if you see life here mainly about self-actualization and self-fulfillment rather than the love of God, 
you will get your life responses wrong. So if we see life more about ordering myself, then we're going to get the responses wrong. But if we see life about pursuing God, about pursuing His nature in our life, then our responses are ordered rightly in the gospel. And so first of all, is the gospel center? Does it work out of your heart? And then secondly, it's not all in the heart. If it doesn't affect your calendar, then you're probably missing something. You know, personally, if this does not, if, if the idea of working devotedly and heartily to bringing righteousness to bear in your life, to bring the gospel into the center of your life, if, if it doesn't affect your calendar, then you're missing something. You, we, I, must set apart time to remind ourselves of our faith and our trust in the gospel. And we do this in church worship services. It's one of the reasons in our, in our kind of membership covenant we say, you know, are you going to show up? And we as members, as we take that covenant, we promise, yes, I will show up. And that showing up isn't just a communal duty. Well, he's not here, I wonder what's wrong with him. It, it's about an ongoing reminder that something else is center to my life but me. That I must have the influence of God's people. I must have the influence of the gospel in my life. This can also be your personal time with God. Do you set apart time to spend time in His Word, to pray, to interact? Those things develop the heart that is towards God. These are both, and these should both be a regular reflection on the great story that the gospel gives us of God working on our behalf. And so you must set apart time to value the gospel, both corporately and individually. And secondly, you must engage in the work of God in the world. Again, if it doesn't affect your calendar, you're probably missing something. If your calendar doesn't have within it some piece of time devoted to engaging in the work of God in the world, uh, then I think you're missing something. And so first for the believer, again, is the work of the church. If participating in a devoted way in the life of church is not part of your life, then I think we have to go back to step one and consider our faith and trust in the gospel. But secondarily, it affects how we live. Do we work for the good of our community? Are we placing ourselves in environments that allow us to witness and to care about others? Does it show in our submission to rulers and authorities? We have many opportunities. And I think there's many opportunities in our community that we're not even aware of because we haven't chased them. But will people look at us and say, those people are devoted wholeheartedly to the glory of God, born out in their community? 
if the gospel doesn't affect your calendar, I think you're probably missing something. Again, God asks each of us to give God-honoring, from-the-heart, devoted effort for the good of ourselves, for the display of His image, and for the growing of the kingdom of God. Let's have a song.